The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Hey everybody, I praise God for you. My name is Pastor Vince and I'm here to uh, study God's Word with you, so I'm really excited to do that. Uh, If you would, please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 50 together. Uh, We're continuing in our series, it's called What is God Doing? And uh, like a piece of fruit that falls from a vine and rots. Sin has severed the world from God the maker and life giver. And the aroma of that rot is especially pungent this week. The unjust death of George Floyd has left many people reeling with a sense of hopelessness and helplessness along with anger and confusion. And righteous anger is a godly response. But hopelessness and, and helplessness, they are never the plight of those who have been called by God out of death and into life. That have been called out of darkness and into light. Never are we cornered into hopelessness and helplessness. As a matter of fact, Jesus has called those who he has saved by his grace to be the salt of the earth. Do you know what salt did in ancient times other than flavor food? It kept stuff from rotting. However, there's this unfortunate idea that seems to be promulgated and and propagated more and more. It's this idea that the Word of God and the people of God and the power of God have insufficient answers for the rot and the evil of our day. And and it's unfortunate that not just that that's believed outside of the church, but it seems like more and more we're being cornered into believing that ourselves. But I want to propose to you today that Christianity has the only true hope for real change because Jesus is the only true God who was willing to suffer to defeat sin forever and to defeat evil forever. Amen. I want to read you right now an account of another man who was unjustly murdered by the civil authorities. We're in Matthew 27, verses 27 through 50. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took a scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, 
They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him on the right, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Praise God for his word. What I want you to see, friends, is that in his death, Jesus identified with every person unjustly oppressed by those in authority in all of history. He gets it. He knows. The question for us today is, what what can followers of Jesus do? He did his part. What can followers of Jesus do to honor the command, to obey the command, to take up the mantle of being the salt of the earth? This mission that he left for us. I'm going to give you three things. The first is this, that we stop believing that we're irrelevant. We have to stop believing that. Let me read you this from Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. For many of these will be familiar verses, but hear them again with me. Read them again with me and think about it in the context of what we're talking about. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Church, we have to ask ourselves if we really believe what God's word says here. Because if we really believe it, we will not allow ourselves to be shuffled off into the corner of the religiously irrelevant Because if our battle is really against flesh and blood, if there really are spiritual forces in in heavenly places, if there is wickedness behind the evil that breaks our hearts today, the hate that breaks our hearts today, the actions that we see of those that do not love the Lord and do not love their brother and sister, do we really believe the devil has schemes? Do we believe that those schemes are... playing out even around us right now in what's going on? Do we see the division, the wedges being driven between people and people groups? Do we think that that's all just 
here in the physical realm? Or do we really believe the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there are spiritual forces of darkness at work? What do we believe about that? Because we believe about that, what the Bible says, that we need to rise up to what we're called to do in light of it. The struggle, the battle is not against flesh and blood. So what? So what do we do? Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Friends, we need to understand that according to Jesus, his people, those who are saved by grace, who are taken from being dead in trespasses and sin, stuck, trapped in darkness, and brought into his kingdom of glorious light, that we are the salt of the earth, that we bear the mantle and responsibility of stopping the rot of sin and evil and the schemes of the enemy. That his intention is to use us. We cannot let ourselves be shuffled over into the corner of either silence or irrelevance. We need to understand our place. And so what do I, part of what I want you to hear is, is the last part. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. Why? Because of what he said before. Because the struggle is not against flesh and blood. Because he's calling us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so what I want you to hear, I, 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 I am so tired of hearing about how prayer is not enough. Friends, I'm not saying there's not also actions that follow up in prayer, but w- to hear people talk about prayer as if it is, is a token, as if it's not an action, as if it somehow doesn't matter, it is the first and most important thing God's people are called to. Do not let someone make you feel. Do not, don't you dare come to the place where you believe that prayer does not matter. That us, standing as God's people, praying in the power of His Spirit, is not exactly what this world needs. And part of the shield that God uses holding back the effects and the forces of darkness. We have to be a praying people. And we can't let anybody make us feel foolish about that. That that is the first thing we run to. Amen. Prayer is a powerful and proactive response to evil. It's not a token it's not, and, and, and listen, maybe, maybe some culpability lays on us because we say we'll pray or we have intentions to pray, but we're, we're maybe not doing that in the power of God's spirit. We're not, it, we're not taking it up for the, the weapon that it is. We're not seeing it as part of a battle with a real enemy, the forces of darkness. The schemes of the devil. So the first thing we have to do, if we're going to bear this mantle, 
that Jesus called us to to be salt in the earth is to stop believing that we are irrelevant. We need to see ourselves as the first line of defense to all the evil that's in the world. We are the army of God. And he has equipped us with the armor of God. He's given us everything we need to defend ourselves from evil and to strike back against it with the power of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This, the time is over for relegating and segregating these things off to the side of, of, uh, and be a part of our spiritual life. Friends, there is a battle going on out here. And God's people have to engage. But we have to do it His way. The second thing I'm going to give you in how we take up this mantle and fulfill this mission of being the salt of the earth is that we work with laws and civil authorities. I'd like you at some point this week to go check out Acts chapters 25 through 28. This is getting towards the end of the book of Acts. And it's talking about how Paul finally riles up the Jewish leaders enough that they start to accuse him, much like they did Jesus, of inciting chaos against Rome. And so Paul ends up before a leader named Festus. uh, And that's in Acts chapter 25. And in verse 11... Paul does this. He, he, he says, I, you know, Festus is kind of listening to him, but not. And, and basically, Paul says, I, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. And what he does in doing that, think about that. What Paul didn't, so he's, his back's against the wall. This, this Roman leader, Festus, is kind of giving him the what for, kind of mocking him, not real sure. Doesn't seem like it's going real well is talking about turning him over to go stand trial in Jerusalem with the religious leaders that are accusing him. And he says, nope, I appeal to Caesar. What's he doing there? He didn't start a riot. He didn't go nuts there in the the middle of the court of Festus. Within the law at that time, he had the right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And so within that system, that's the move he made. And here's what happened next. As he does that, then he's brought in front of King Agrippa. Now he's kind of on his way to see Caesar. In between there, he ends up talking to King Agrippa. This is in, uh, let, me, let, me read, let me read something Agrippa says to him. He, says, he replies to Paul. So Paul gets in front of Agrippa and gives him his whole, lays out his testimony. And he's, kind of, he's challenging Agrippa. He says, because Paul thinks Agrippa knows some of what he's talking about, that he gets it. That he, you know, he says, none of this stuff about Jesus happened in a corner. He's saying to Agrippa, I know you understand the prophets. Don't you? And here... And then Agrippa says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. There's debate on whether Agrippa was just mocking him or if there was any seriousness to that. But here's what Paul said. I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, speaking of King Agrippa, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What does he mean? He says right there in the court of King Agrippa in front of everybody listening with no shame, I wish every single one of you, no matter how foolish you think I am, he'd already been accused of that his great learning was causing him to lose his mind. He didn't care how wild the, the reality of Jesus living, dying, and rising from the grave sounded to people. Right there in the middle of that court, he said, yeah, I, if it takes a long time or a short time, I hope all of you end up like me, believing in this Jesus that I believe Then, he's heading to Rome from there. He gets shipwrecked, survives that, then ends up in house arrest for two years 
where he pre- and now he's in Rome, where he preaches the gospel to the whole Roman guard around him. He's preaching the gospel in Rome, which right then is the crossroads of, of humanity. Travel and trade is, is happening through there. And so the gospel is spread because Paul's sitting there in house arrest because he appealed to Caesar within that legal right that he had. And while he's sitting there in prison, writes several New Testament epistles, including Ephesians, often called the queen of the epistles, Colossians, Philippians. He writes Philemon. What's my point? Church, church tradition says, we don't see this in the scriptures, but that he was released two years after and went on a fourth missionary journey after that. What is my point? My point is that by working within the law and, the, and the, the civil authorities that he had by appealing to Caesar. He ended up in front of Agrippa, got to preach the gospel. He ended up shipwrecked in Malta, uh, bit by a viper. They're like, oh man, he's got to be a murderer or a robber or something. He got bit by a viper. That's surely God's vengeance. And then we shook it off in the fire and it didn't harm him. They had a different opinion, praise God. Then he ends up in Rome preaching the gospel in, 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 the, most, in the most strategic place he possibly could have been at that point in the ancient world. And the gospel spreads like fire. Why? He was willing to work within the existing laws and civil structures. Amen. The third thing I'm going to give you is that we have to live and preach the gospel. We left off at chapter, uh, sorry, verse 50 of chapter 27 in Matthew. We stopped at verse 50. Let me just read down to verse 54. It's just four more verses, okay? Let me read you this. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Look at what changed this government official that was participating, guarding over the murder of Jesus. What was it? Friends, really, it was the heart of the gospel. It was this realization that Jesus was truly the Son of God. And that's what I'm talking about. When, 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 we, when we let this idea happen that, oh, well, churches and, and, and Christians and Jesus followers, well, they can, they can do that over there in, in, in their corner as long as it you know, doesn't spill out into any other arenas of life. Let's keep that sequestered, but you know, it, it, don't, don't, let that, don't let that be, don't try to make that influence flow out into anywhere else. Hold on a second. The centurion came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. What were the ripple effects of that? This was a guy that just before that was participating in his murder. But he got shook. He got shook by the power of God. He got shook by the revelation of who Jesus is is and who Jesus is and what Jesus is taught and what Jesus is about and what Jesus calls us to is what we are called to go out into this world and let people know about. That's what stops the rot. That's what being salt looks like. And that's what we're called to. It's about getting the message of Jesus, the reality of who Jesus is. He isn't just some 
ancient poet, philosopher, scribe, prophet. He's not just some guy that has some good things to say that have endured. He is the Son of God who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a perfect life, never sinned once, then died in the place of humanity for our sins and rose from the grave, just like he said he would. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this revelation, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he has made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, to be forgiven of sin, this revelation is what's going to change the hearts and the minds of those who are overcome with evil, those who are falling prey to the deceptions and the lies and the wicked schemes of the evil one. It's Jesus. Why does the gospel have such power? Why do I believe? Why, do I, why am I saying we should believe that the gospel has the power to change the world? That the gospel is the thing that we have been given to go take and be like salt spreaders in winter, man. Just spreading salt everywhere, holding back and stopping that rot that sin and evil cause. Why does the gospel have so much power? The first thing I'm going to give you is that living the gospel is going to mean walking in love. That the gospel and walking in love and the power that love brings to the equation, you, you can't pull those apart. Let me read you this. Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. Really, it's a part of some of the same instructions we got in Ephesians 6. It's all one flow of thought, but this, this is earlier. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I've been talking about the aroma of this rot. You smelled rotting vegetables or rotting meat before? It's not pleasant. But there's a fragrant aroma. It's the aroma of love. It's the aroma of Christ offering himself as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. It's the aroma of of, of, of us being given a chance to really see and understand what love is. And this is inextricably tied from the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus coming, dying in our place for our sins, sacrificing himself out of love for us. And it shows us what love really is. Love is not just an emotion. It's not a fleeting feeling. It's not something that we fall into and, and fall out of. Love is a part of God's divine nature that he has shared with us. It's an ability he has given us. It's a gift that we have that we can participate in. And, and the best shot we have at understanding it is to look at Christ. What does it say here? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Part of being salt in this world is us reflecting the goodness of who God is to the world. We, but we got to believe it first, man. We have to believe he is powerful and he is good. Or we will have no chance to take those monumental life-changing truths and reflect them and give them to others. We must be convinced to the core of our being to the point that we don't just do some things dancing around the gospel, but that we live and breathe the gospel. It says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus Christ made walking in true love possible. 
Because without his life, death, and resurrection, we wouldn't know what love is. Jesus said plainly that the world would know that we belong to him by our love one for the other. Part of why the gospel has the power to change the world is because the gospel turns people full of hate, full of darkness, into people full of love and full of light. Part of why the gospel has so much power is because it shows us and helps us understand how much we are loved to look at Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, hanging upon the cross, bleeding and dying in our place. It helps us as much as our finite minds can understand how precious and how infinite and how amazing the love of God is. And it gives us a chance to pray and to ask for his help, to live in that love, to walk in that love and to share that love with as many people as possible, to let that love overcome us and overwhelm us and change our thoughts and our words and our actions. The gospel shows the love of God and it leads to a people full of that love, which is part of why it has the power to change the world. We got to believe it, friends. And then do something about what we believe. Amen. The second thing I'm going to give you about why the, power, the gospel has the power to change the world is that the gospel is the great equalizer of all mankind. Let me read this to you from Galatians 23. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is part of what Jesus came to do. This is part of what he meant for his gospel to do, to come and to level the playing field. Did you hear what he said? There's neither Jew nor Greek, right? This, these false barriers that we tend to put up around nations and around people groups and around genders where we see some as greater or better than others, the gospel flattens every one of those barriers, decimates them and pounds them into irrelevant dust that blows away in the wind of his glory. We don't get any of those barriers anymore. We don't get any of those false ideas. They're not able to survive when we stare full face in the truth that the gospel brings us to because the gospel shows us that every single one of us are sinners and that we all need to be saved and that we all must come to Jesus for that salvation. In what matters most, in things concerning eternity, in things concerning our standing before God, we are all on a level playing field. Every single one of us are a broken sinner aside from Christ. And there is only one. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door that every man and every woman must walk through. It does not matter how you perceive yourself. It does not matter if in your own mind you have a status that, that, that makes you think your righteousness can bring you to God yourself. There is no one who is going to come to God aside from Christ. No one. Not the person laying in the gutter, fully convinced of their brokenness, so darkened in their understanding of who they are in God that they would believe He would never want to touch them. From that person to the person sitting ascended to the hill of their own mind, standing in their own righteousness, thinking that absolutely God loves them and wants them, because why wouldn't he? Because of how awesome they see themselves being. Both of those people, neither one of them is coming to God until they come to the understanding that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, that they will bow before him, disregarding what they have 
built up in their own mind is a belief about themselves and seeing themselves the way God sees them. As made in His image. And that His desire is to save them. And that He's made a way that that's possible through faith in Christ. That none of us is going to show up one day in eternity. We're going to come, none of us is going to come to the gates of heaven and say, these, these are the reasons I should be allowed to spend eternity with God. Because I did a bunch of these things or I didn't do a bunch of these things. That'll never be the case. God is perfect. God is holy. Only perfection and holiness can be in His presence. Which means all of us are out. But Jesus in His perfection, Jesus in His holy righteousness came and lived the life we couldn't live and then He died the death we should have died. And it's scandalous. It doesn't seem to make sense. But God has set this thing up so that if we will trust by faith in Jesus' sacrifice, that the righteousness Jesus earned, He will give it to us as a gift. Not something we've earned. But if we will just trust Him in faith, He will give us the gift of righteousness and He will see us as perfect before God. Welcomed into His presence. Hallelujah. The gospel is the great equalizer in both ways. One, in our condition aside from Christ, that we are all sinners. That our, our moralism doesn't make us any better. That every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. So we're equalized in our sinfulness and we're made equal in the solution to our sinfulness. Coming and bowing before Christ, surrendering, declaring our need. Hallelujah. I'm talking about why the gospel has the power to change the world. Because we need to see who we really are. We need to see who one another really is. We need to be humbled and broken down and brought to the place where we are so thankful for the love of God that we're willing to spend the rest of our life sharing that love with others. We are so enamored with the love of God. So overcome with the beauty of His gospel that we're willing to spend the rest of our lives. What did he say in Ephesians? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. What does that mean? It means that what did God do in Christ? Emptied himself. Christ gave up everything in order to love us and to save us. And he calls us to follow him. That is a movement of people that will change the world. That's salt. That'll slow the rot. That'll change something. May God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, empower us. May God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, continue to convince us and bring us to a place of understanding how absolutely crucial it is that we take up this mantle, that we live and preach this gospel, that we walk in love, and we change the world. May we fight and pray and love by the power of God for the glory of God and for the good of the world that He loves. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before You in the name of Jesus. God, throughout this series, we've asked the question, what are You doing? And we find ourselves, we ask that question about Rahab and about Joseph and about Moses, what were you doing in those? And we had the benefit of hindsight and we could see some of what your ability to 
weave your will throughout history to accomplish your good purposes. We could, we could see some of that. Today, God, we find ourselves in the midst of our own tragedy and difficulty. And again, there's a temptation to shake our fists and say, what are you doing? In disbelief and unbelief. But God, help us. The very purpose of this sermon series was to change our tone and bring us to a place where when we're perplexed, and it's hard for us to see what it is you are doing, that, that the question in our hearts is, is, what is God doing? And with an anxious expectation, we know that you are working. God, please continue to cultivate in our hearts through all of this humility and love and a desperation for you. God, as we see we see hate and evil seem to increase and divisions seem to increase and it seems like the scheme of the devil is to just keep dividing people and keep getting them at each other's throats and keep getting them to hate each other more and more. God, may we be shook from the stupor of, of, of our everyday little distractions and may we be desperate for your anointing and for your power and for the power of your spirit to flow in us and through us for us to walk in love the way you've called us to, to be salt and light in this world. God, continue, please, by the power of your Spirit to shake us and mold us and make us into the soldiers that you've called us to be. Lord, please, please give us vision to see the real enemy. Please help us to see how often we are played, how often we are duped, into going after one another, into fighting against flesh and blood. You said, God, that the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of darkness. God, help us see past those who are also being played. God, we don't want to end up like puppets being directed by a marionette. You, oh God, are our king. And you have set us free to obey you. Thank you, we're no longer slaves. Thank you, we're no longer puppets on a string. God, help us not to be sucked into anger towards those who still are. Fill our hearts, oh God, with compassion. Lord, we need you. We need you. We know that. Thank you that you promised to be with us, to never leave us nor forsake us. We trust you. And we worship you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.